from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And this is the second in our mini Ditchley series, where we record from Ditchley Park, where the CER every year takes around 50 of the top economists and policy commentators and political scientists to discuss the big European questions of our time. This year, it's How to Save the EU. It's an ambitious program, and we've just finished the panel on what does the liberal backlash in its newer members mean for the EU? And to discuss this, I'm here with Heather Graby, the director of the Open Society European Policy Institute. Welcome, Heather. And with Constanze Stelzmüller, a Robert Bosch senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. So I would like us, because we have 10 minutes and this is a big topic, to jump straight into it. And Heather, maybe you could talk about this gap in expectations, that uh, the fact that we are seeing a convergence in economic living standards between core Europe, Western Europe and Eastern Europe, and yet there is this illiberal backlash. What are we seeing here? Why is this happening? Well, economic growth has been good and living standards have gone up, but wages still remain below the level of, of Western Europe, and that's caused resentments. And of course, many people in Central and Eastern Europe had big dreams about what EU membership would mean. It has brought more money, but it hasn't necessarily brought all of the uh, prosperity that they might have hoped for. The migration crisis of 2015 to 16 provided an ideal opportunity for nationalism to go in the region because it was possible to draw on historical grievances, resentments and, and worries about uh, the country's places in Europe and attach those to the migration crisis. Uh, so, for example, in the case of Hungary, to draw on the legacy of Trianon and the sense of Hungary having lost a lot of its territory and its peoples becoming minorities in other countries to provoke a greater fear of Hungarian culture and language and simply a, a smaller Hungarian population being overrun by larger majority populations from elsewhere. And so what was a political issue became a cultural issue. And then it was exploited as a very strong political movement within Hungary. That's what the ruling party has used over the past few years, since 2010, since they came in, as a reason to argue that the EU is trying to dilute Hungarian culture. So the political grievances aren't new, but the migration crisis has been a catalyst for them. The historical grievances aren't new, but the migration crisis provided a further boost for nationalism in the region. And it allowed certain parties to argue that they had the responsibility of protecting the nation, the endangered nation, against external forces. And they managed to put the EU into that category of external forces, even though, in fact, they are full EU members. They've tried to use that to give themselves a free ride on EU law and to say, well, we're not bound by the decisions that are taken at EU level or by the European Court of Justice decisions or by what the European institutions say is EU law and, and must be respected in terms of the EU's treaties. All right, there's already a lot to unpack here. Maybe first of all, Constanze, how right are the countries like Hungary and Poland to be resentful of the EU's dealing with the migration crisis? Well, this is a tricky one because of the central German role in this. And I'm frankly, personally of two minds about it. It seems to me that if Germany hadn't in September of 2015 said, we will take these refugees, there would have been a massive humanitarian crisis in from Austria all the way through the Balkans. And we would have been blamed for this. And these were countries with far more fragile political economies. The impacts would have been catastrophic. And 
I think Merkel was quite right to say, not just for humanitarian reasons, but for practical reasons, we as a political economy, as a polity, are more capable of absorbing this kind of shock than any of our neighbours. At the same time, it is perfectly legitimate and reasonable to argue that this was a unilateral act not coordinated with neighbours and which had itself massive knock-on effects on the neighbours and on Europe in general because it created, as it were, a giant sucking sound and attracted more refugees and created unnecessarily a, a political crisis in Europe which was then open to exploitation by populist forces. How serious should we be taking where these countries are going? And in your comments earlier, Constanza, you talked about there being a Brexit from Europe without the structures of actually exiting, that they're exiting from the obligations of the European Union, but trying to keep the rights. Could you And the funding. That? Yes. Well, it seems to me that we have all been somewhat obsessed with Brexit and the consequences of Brexit for Britain, but also for Europe, and not paying enough attention to the fact that Eastern European countries like Poland and Hungary in particular, but others as well, I think Slovakia to some degree, the Czech Republic now under new leadership, flaunting EU rules and institutions, refusing to implement European laws and regulation, all the while reorganizing their countries. This is true particularly in, in, in Hungary and Poland, in ways that are in direct contravention of not just European values, but European rules about balance and separation of powers, protections of minorities, etc. And that if you look at the impact of this, it's like a soft exit from the EU. It's wanting to maintain the funding, wanting to, to keep the rights, but refusing to fulfill the obligations. And as we were discussing in our session just before this conversation, the EU is truly struggling to respond to this, and EU member states are struggling to, to respond to this, not least because they have difficulty accepting that similar things are happening in their own backyards at home. Heather, in the session earlier, you had some very salient, very constructive suggestions, I thought, on how the EU could respond to this, especially with regards to the issue of corruption, with regards to the issues that the citizens in Central and Eastern European countries actually are worried about and what they expect from the European Union, how the European Union could make their life better. The EU has to take it very seriously, what's happening in uh, Poland and Hungary in particular, uh, because it has externalities for all of the other member states by uh, saying that they are simply not going to implement EU laws that they disagree with or council decisions um, which they find inconvenient. That's a, a really fundamental defiance of the whole principle of EU membership, which is that however much you disagree with the decision, you make your point in the council. Once it's made, you go home and you implement it. That's something the Brits could always be relied upon to do, for example. So now we're in a situation where Poland and Hungary are, each of them, saying that they will not abide by decisions of the European Court of Justice that they will not implement certain EU rules, they won't maintain, for example, standards for the treatment of asylum seekers. And that has profound implications for rule of law in the European Union. The EU is based on the idea of a community of law, on the idea that everybody applies the laws so that businesses can trade across borders, that the single market can function, so that courts can actually respect one another's decisions through mutual recognition. So now we're in a situation whereby both the decision of the countries to say that they're going to defy certain elements 
of EU law, plus the takeover of domestic institutions by one ruling party, particularly the court system, threatens the whole functioning of the EU's single market and because it depends on the rule of law. If, as the Polish government proposals for the courts would allow, the Polish justice minister could instruct the courts to take certain decisions, then how can you be sure of mutual recognition working anymore? They can issue, for example, a common arrest warrant towards citizens of another EU member state and expect automatic extradition. They they can also decide on cases of commercial disputes as well. So this is really very fundamental, but it's other EU member states have been reluctant and extremely slow to take it so seriously because they've been nervous about increasing the EU's powers in these areas uh, just when there's a, a much stronger sovereignty reflex in many countries. The danger now is that the EU could be very slow in putting in place the kinds of remedies that are needed. Now, those remedies, in my view, would include much more attention to investigation of the use of EU funds. The structural and cohesion funds account for more than 4% of Hungary's GDP and 80% of its public investment. This is taxpayers' money from other EU countries. So the EU has an obligation to investigate whether this, this money is being used for the purposes that it was supposed to be used for and that were agreed between the member states. And exposing the misuse of funds is an important way also of showing the public, particularly in Hungary, um, the implications of one-party rule, of how takeover of the institutions actually isn't in their own interests, either in terms of the rule of law or in terms of, of the allocation of public resources. We've already heard the gong calling us to the next panel. I do, however, want to get into one other issue because there was some disagreement that I thought was fascinating in the discussion that we've just had. The idea of a flexible Europe, the idea of a core Europe under the leadership of Emmanuel Macron and possibly Angela Merkel. Mm -hmm. We know that there is some resentment in Central and Eastern European countries towards this idea that they will be somehow on the sidelines. But we have heard the argument earlier that this could be perfect for them, that a sort of membership minus is exactly what countries like Poland or Hungary need. How do you feel about this and how should Germany and France deal with this problem? Well, two-tier Europe is far off. Uh, we've still got to see what kind of coalition Merkel forms and, and how much Germany and France can agree on in, in terms of more powers for certain areas of, of EU action. For the Central and Eastern Europe, the whole idea of multi-speed, multi-tier Europe raises fundamental dilemmas. For some countries, for example, Slovakia, which is already in the in the euro, it's already caused the government to move back towards the core of Europe and to say, we want to be part of any kind of inner tier. We want to be fully part of, of the EU. But in other countries, it's actually created a political divide between those who favour EU membership, which is the case in for, for three quarters of Poles and two thirds of Hungarians. They're, they're strongly in favour of EU membership. But what exactly does that mean for them? Which aspects of the EU really matter for them? And that's a domestic debate that hasn't really been had yet. And it's one where having a democratic opposition is going to be really important in making clear to the public what the choices are and the implications of being in an outer tier. It might suit Fidesz, the ruling party in Hungary, or Peace, the ruling party in, in Poland, to be in an outer tier. But that's not the view, or indeed in the interests, of many other Poles and Hungarians. But they haven't been presented with those choices because the implications have not been discussed domestically, precisely because the opposition is not there in Parliament and, and in the press doing so. So. so that's why one-party takeover of institutions, particularly the media, really matters. If these countries can't have a democratic debate about their choices as EU members in the EU as it's changing, then they're going to be very unhappy with EU membership in future. Hmm. Let me come at this from another direction. I think the question to ask here is what, what core? There are three areas that are ripe for deeper integration. Eurozone, management, migration and defence and security. 
Eurozone management for sort of anybody with a technocratic approach to these things is an obvious candidate because we're so clearly in a halfway house. But that is politically immensely controversial. The most controversial and least likely to be amenable question is migration. Clearly there the cultural and political differences are huge. Whereas a topic that could actually bridge the divides between those who are in the Eurozone and outside of it is a defense and security, because that is something the Eastern Europeans are particularly interested in. And so I could actually see greater defense and security integration as a way of mitigating the divides that have have come about over management of the Eurozone crisis and, and the divisions between the ins and the outs. There, it, it is obvious, particularly with the sort of American ambiguity about its commitments within NATO, it is fairly obvious that in defense and security, there is a great deal that could be done and should be done, particularly if we are not able to rely on the uh, automatic provision of an American backbone of forces. Again, Heather is completely right to say that all of this uh, depends very much on how the uh, Paris and Berlin relationship develops after the formation of the German coalition. But I see a fair amount of opportunity in the defense and security field. That's a wonderfully optimistic note to end the podcast on Heather Graby, Constanze Stelzmüller. Thank you very much. If you enjoy listening to the CER podcast, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find us. And you can also let us know what you think on Twitter at CER underscore EU.